Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to mention that there will again be a postscript this week after our regular conversation. So stay tuned for some additional remarks after I thank today's guest. Second, I want to thank all of you for writing with your feedback and suggestions. I enjoy it immensely. I try to reply to most of you, but know that either way, I read every one. It's always wonderful to hear from you, so keep those emails coming to mail at econtalk.org. And speaking of you, the listeners, please keep spreading the word about EconTalk. If you're a student, tell your teacher about us. If you're a teacher, tell your student about us. Tell your friends and family. And if you use iTunes, please go to EconTalk's page and leave a review. Finally, I want to remind you of the resources at our homepage, econtalk.org. We've now done over 70 podcasts. Every one of them is available at econtalk.org for downloading or listening. So help yourself. And at the archive page, we also have a search engine for finding words or phrases in that archive. My guest today is Bruce Yandel of Clemson University and George Mason University's Mercatus Center. He's the author of numerous books, including Common Sense and Common Law for the Environment, Creating Wealth in Hummingbird Economies. Our conversation will revisit in depth some issues we've touched on in recent podcasts, particularly the tragedy of the commons, market failure, and the potential for the common law to improve matters. Bruce, welcome back to Econ Talk. Glad to have a conversation with you this morning, Russ. Bruce, what is a hummingbird economy? You know, I, I, I was uh, when I wrote this book. I think it was turned out in 1997. I had really become fascinated uh, watching hummingbirds. Uh, we uh, at our place uh, down in Georgia. We have a country home there, and we uh, we enjoy the bird life. And so Dot had put to put up some hummingbird feeders, and uh, we became quite fascinating watching these little birds as they come to the feeders and so forth. And and uh, the difficulty any one hummingbird has with uh, getting its fill and then pulling away for a little while, perhaps to digest, uh, hoping that it'll be able to come back. But uh, as quick as one pulls away, three more come, and there's a constant buzz and chase about the food. And so, uh, you know, I was thinking about that, and I use that as the metaphor, in a sense, to, to uh, introduce in this book the commons problem, and that is common access resources, which is like the food for the hummingbirds. There's no rationing mechanism that's apparent. Uh, best I can tell, there are no customs and traditions among hummingbirds, uh, oldest or prettiest first, uh, to take turns, anything like that. And so it's a constant battle in a way, truly a battle among those birds as to who will get it. So uh, get there early, <clears throat> get there first, get your best position, get as much as you can because when you come back there may not be any more. And uh, and that's the essence of the commons problem, and so uh, call that hummingbird economies. Um, but you know, while using the metaphor, and, and perhaps uh, I should have had second or third thoughts about that. Uh, but while using the metaphor, it 
it it's important to realize that the commons problem is the human problem. Well, it's the problem of all living animals, um, where there are resources that are there for the taking. And in a sense, that's the way the world is, uh, except for the fact that human beings have figured out a way to build some institutions that serve our purposes for rationing and, and helping us uh, to survive and accumulate wealth. And, and for stewardship and, and protection of those resources. So in the case of the hummingbirds, uh, they're not aware that uh, you and Dot, your wife, are the um, bestowers of wealth. They just – it comes and goes. They don't understand why it comes and goes. Uh, we have some resources uh, like that that are just out there. Most of our resources are created uh, that are valuable, but there are plenty that are just out there, the air, the water, etc. And we want to use them uh, without fighting, and we also want to protect them so that we can use them again. That's right. I mean, the the accumulation of wealth, uh, anything physical, I guess the perhaps the safest form of wealth accumulated is in our brains. Uh, uh, then they have to uh, destroy us. That is, they, if anyone wants to get at it, it's impossible. And so it's perhaps our safest investment in the, in terms of the commons problem. But any other kind of property, including financial assets, physical assets, <clears throat> in a way it's uh, it's up for grabs. Were it not for uh, institutions of property, rules of just conduct, uh, behavioral aspects that get introduced over long periods of time so that uh, um, we know what belongs to somebody else and they know what is ours and we respect each other's property. Um, you know, were it not for that, then we would be living like those hummingbirds, uh, in a sense, always on the margin of starvation. But if we worked real hard, we'd be able to make it to the next day. And uh, But then there's that serious question, and you touched on it. Who is the provider? Um, that is the tragedy of the commons, the word tragedy, if we want to pick on that a little bit. Uh, the tragedy of the commons occurs when there is such overuse that the resource will no longer replenish itself. And, uh, you know, that wonderful turn of phrase that... Uh, Garrett Hardin used in uh, his Science Magazine article in 1968, The Tragedy of the Commons. Uh, when he used that turn of phrase, he provided for, I would say, for mankind in one set of few words, a wonderful mnemonic device that says, be careful, folks. Uh, if there is a resource that must replenish itself, like a pasture, then if you put too many sheep on and you try to get there early if you're a shepherd so that you can feed your sheep before the other shepherd gets there, that kind of behavior can lead to the point where that pasture will begin to look like a baseball field and there'll be no the more grass. The infield of a That's baseball right. field. That's the the right. infield, the base That's paths, right. excuse me. That's a baseball right. field's a beautiful place to graze a sheep. Uh, uh, it's the, the base, but you're talking about a little league baseball field that many of us have played on that is a dusty, dirty, right. uh, <laughs> muddy place. But, um, you know, watching Fenway Park last night, so it's, okay. it's, it a, green, it's a green gem. Um, so the tragedy, actually, I've thought about this way. You're talking about one aspect of the tragedy, which is the destruction of the resource. So too many people graze the – too many sheep graze the, the pasture, and it becomes denuded of grass, and uh, there's erosion, and it's eventually 
is is worthless, or too many people fish the ocean and uh, a particular species essentially could go extinct or become so small that it it could, in terms of the average catch, that it's it can barely uh, be worth fishing. But there's a second tragedy, which the hummingbird uh, metaphor is is useful for thinking about, because as it, as we pointed out that the hummingbird example. The resource is self-replenishing in the sense, from the hummingbird's perspective. It, uh, you actually enjoy it potentially when it's when there's more fighting. But there's a second tragedy, which is the the amount of energy and effort devoted unnecessarily to getting access to the resource. So in the case of the hummingbirds, they're burning a lot of, of valuable life-saving calories, uh, trying to get at by sparring and and darting in and out, trying to get at that food source. And similarly, the fisherman spends too much time chasing the scarce fish compared to an alternative system where there would not be common access. So there's, there's sort of two tragedies here. One is you can destroy the resource uh, if it's overused and had there's common access without any institutional restraint. The second is, is that even if it doesn't get destroyed, uh, it's waste. There's an enormous, potentially enormous amount of waste involved in uh, getting access to what's valuable about that resource. Yes, and and uh, you know it's amazing what a uh, what appears to be a simple institutional change. None of these things are simple, uh, but on its face it looks simple. Uh, it's amazing what a simple institutional change, a change in a rule, can do in terms of conserving the resources you're talking about. Uh, the fisheries are, are a wonderful example, and every every scheme, I guess, that anyone could ever imagine has been used to in an attempt to ration activities with respect to harvesting oysters or lobster or salmon or you name it, any species of fish that has commercial value, value to human beings. And, uh, you know, those rules have to do with seasons. You set a limited period of time when one can engage in that activity, and and in the case of, uh, of those fishermen, you say, well, let's get bigger boats with bigger engines, or a bit more crew, bigger net. because we've limited the amount of time. So uh, you get faster boats, they, stay, they cut the season down a little bit further, well, let's get even faster ones, and so forth, and so uh, our more highly mechanized netting procedures there's always that adjustment that takes place. And so after a while, there's a vast amount of capital there, and you still have the tragedy of the commons. In a sense, you're at the margin. That is where the solution has not been found. Um, you know, we see it, I guess, I think about it each time I'm attempting to get on an expressway in Atlanta or in Washington or any other city at peak traffic times, and there you are. Um, there's a limited amount of space out there, and so if you live in one of those cities, you say, well, that means I better get up an hour earlier. And, uh, and so, so you're, you're using up resources, in a sense, wasting resources, uh, because there's an unmanaged access out there. It's a common access problem. It's a tragedy of the, of the commons. They add another lane, more people come in, <laughs> and at some point, there it is congested again. Uh, we do see some... What appear to be simple changes, very complex to bring them about, some pricing that is beginning to enter uh, in various places in the world. It's been in Singapore for decades. For traffic. 
Yeah, so if you want to come into the inner city at certain hours of the day, that, that's fine. But if you travel one more block, mister, and the cab is going to cost you another $40. And, and so you say to yourself, well, I think I'll get out and walk. Thank you. Yeah. Um, the, um, the use of pricing in the case of traffic uh, highlights one of the challenges of implementing these simple solutions that you talk about, which is the redistributional effects. Uh, someone who is enjoying something at a low cost suddenly is forced to pay a high cost. There is some compensation in the sense that traffic gets lower. Uh, uh, excuse me, so the time cost goes down, offsetting some of the monetary loss. But a lot of these institutional changes uh, are fought because of the fact that it makes some people, often a lot of people, worse off, although others are made better off. So let, let's turn to some of those other solutions. You mentioned the example, and by the way, in the case of, of fishing, using a season as a way to manage the tendency to overfish. Um, and again, I want to mention the intuition of that. If you, it's the same idea of the hummingbird. The hummingbird feeds as much as it can take uh, before it's pushed away, because the hummingbird doesn't have any guarantee that when it comes back, there'll be any left. Uh, later, the same is true for the fisherman. The fisherman wants to keep every every fish, because returning a fish to the ocean, there's no guarantee you can ca- keep it. If it were your own, for your pond, you'll put a fish back to let it grow larger. But when it's the ocean and there's common access, you don't have that incentive. So that's the fundamental uh, distortion of incentives that's taking place when there's common access. Uh, the uh, I don't know if this is a true story. Maybe you know this. But there are some fishing seasons that are extraordinarily short. I was told that the herring, the Alaskan herring fishing season is three minutes long. Uh, we think of a season being a month, a week, uh, a few days, but it's three minutes. Or maybe, no, excuse me, it's 18 minutes. 18 minutes. A, um, a bell goes off. Before the bell goes off, the boats all jostle for, for position. A bell goes off, and then I think 18 minutes later, another gun goes off for bell, and the season's over. But they do that to make sure that the fish survive till next season. Otherwise, they'll catch too many right? because they've worked so hard at, at uh, improving the, the nets and the boats, as you, as you talked about. So what, what can we do? What are some of the options uh, in these different situations? We have, we've talked about some of these common uh, access resources. We have the oceans for fishing. We have the air for breathing. We have water supply, rivers and, and lakes. Uh, that we want to use the water for various purposes and we want that water to be clean. Uh, we have the pastures of, of traditional agriculture that have often been held in common. What are some of the ways that human beings have found to solve or at least improve on uh, the common access problem? You know, there, there are just many, many wonderful stories that, that go way back in, in history, uh, probably as far as one can trace them. Uh, where you discover how human beings in different communities in different times manage the commons. Uh, in a sense, I, th- I guess one of the things that's rather impressive to me, Russ, is, is in, in reading and studying about commons, um, which, which, of course, is the beginning of any discussion of the environmental problem. You begin with the commons, just as you've pointed out. But in, in reading and studying about them, it seems that the tragedies are infrequent. That is, a true tragedy where human beings are consuming a resource and lo and behold, they consume it to the point that the pasture turns into something as hard as pavement. 
That is, human beings through time, over time, have figured out all kinds of ways to avoid that tragedy. Now, I'm not suggesting that there are not some situations where there have been horrendous losses of certain kinds of resources because of mismanagement, but it's a rare thing. The uh, In the Middle Ages, uh, in, in Europe, they developed what, what they called stents. We still use the word. It entered the language, and we talk about serving your stint in the army or serving your stint doing this or that. But a stint was a property right, and each family in a community would receive a certain number of stints, which allows them to graze sheep, goat, or cattle on the common pasture. And, and so... Uh, there had to be some enforcement mechanism, and that story generally is not told as to, well, who enforced and made certain that, that you really were uh, using your own grazing units. The problem with the stents were they were not tradable. So if there were a family that had, uh, say, ten children and a family that had two children, each family unit would get the same number of stents, and so you couldn't trade them to your neighbor because of the enforcement costs. But, you uh, so basically, if you think about it a simple way, maybe we could imagine, I know this isn't probably how it happened, but if you imagine seven families sharing a common pasture, each one would get a day. And so you knew that if it was Tuesday, it was your day. And if you saw one of your neighbors on the pasture on Tuesday, you'd know that your neighbor was violating the, the understanding. And uh, you'd use all kinds of mechanisms, I assume, to stop that from happening. But when use gets more complex and some people are going to have greater access than others for whatever reason, larger families or larger flocks or just a larger desire for whatever the good is, uh, it gets hard to enforce. And you know, there's a, there's a fascinating story or images of it, an Old Testament story about wells. Uh, yeah, big people, problem. Yeah, people living in an arid land. Uh, water is the scarce resource, and whether you have donkeys or camels or water, and people that have to have access to water, and so uh, the tribes would put would find a huge stone to put over the well that required twelve people to lift, and there were twelve tribes, and so that meant that each tribe had a representative, and we would go and lift the stone, and everybody would watch. And they would know that, hey, you're not overdrafting. You're not getting more than your share. You couldn't sneak in in the middle of the night for a, a midnight uh, camel watering. That's right. Because <laughs> you couldn't move the stone. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice example. It's a great example. <laughs> but uh, you know, the stents we've got we've got bird limits now, fishing limits, so on and so forth. So the the modern use of stents has continued uh, the idea. Uh, in in Switzerland today, they they in in certain communities they have common pastures that are up that are in the mountains, uh, where they pasture the animals, and those are on a shared basis where each family again has certain access rights. You have to have a representative of your family with your cattle, but a stranger is not able to uh, come into the pasture. You've got to be a resident of the community, and so they have that can those social pressures, social norms that operate to conserve the resource. The uh, um, but but every one of these arrangements <clears throat> we could describe as some kind of property arrangement. It always is a property right of some kind that that people figure out uh, when we're 
looking at ways to avoid the tragedy of the commons. Um, the most the most dramatic way. Those are creative ways of, of creating property. The, that's right. The most dramatic way, of course, is pure private. Those are property rights to have access. Right. The most dramatic way is to privatize the commons and have someone just own it rather than having it owned in common. Yes. To divide it up. And in certain settings, that wouldn't be technologically uh, feasible. You couldn't give everybody their own little tiny plot. But as people have gotten wealthier, of course, uh, farms, privately held farms, are a way to avoid avoid this tragedy. I, I have to mention uh, two examples of this that are rather extraordinary. I, I don't know if you've seen these, Bruce. They're really they're amazing. But uh, there was a ranch in Africa uh, that was a privately held ranch, and it was visible from space. Uh, and I've seen pictures of it. The pictures don't reproduce very well. There's not, not a very good picture of it, but I've seen the photos. Basically, the ranch was a, some kind of hexagon-shaped, you know, some kind of uh, multi-sided, fenced-in area. Everything outside the ranch was common property. Uh, it was animals grazed on it and just wildlife grazed on it. But the ranch itself was fenced in, and, of course, the owner of the ranch had an incentive to take care of it. It was sufficiently large that you could see it from space. Uh, satellite photos would show a green gem in the middle of an arid brown uh, landscape. Uh, it was, so it would show up. Another place you can see it from space is the uh, Israel-Egyptian border. You look at the border, satellite pictures of, of the Israeli-Egyptian border. That border is a straight line uh, that's visible from space. The Israeli side is green. And the Egyptian side is brown. Uh, it's right where the uh, you know the Sinai Desert is, and the the um, Israeli side is fenced. Some of it's private property. I think some of it's public property, but it's not common access. It's it's parks of various kinds that the government has has run. But the Egyptian side is just nomadic uh, uh, people graze animals on it, and wildlife lives off it. So it's been grazed to the ground. Because there are no norms and no private property and no property of any kind, no property rights of any kind, but on the Israeli side, it's uh, it's fertile and green. You can see dramatic differences. So, obviously, property is a way is one way to solve uh, common uh, held resources. But sometimes we can't establish those property rights at a low enough cost to make it worthwhile. That's right. And it is a it is uh, it is obviously it is a cost pro- cost problem. It's costly to run these institutions to develop them and quite often I think we might look at what appears to be a tragedy of a, of the commons, a certain kind of practice that appears to be destructive at the margin in terms of natural resources and and we say, well, gee whiz, dummy, all you have to do is develop property rights and uh, you can address that problem. That phrase, all you have to do is, is loaded with cost in terms of, well, who's going to monitor? How are you going to monitor? What's the cost of measuring? What's the cost of metering and so forth? And, and those, uh, those can be very costly things. There are two kinds of technologies that come to mind, um, either of which can address the problem and may when there are innovations with those technologies, make something feasible. One set is legal technology. Uh, The Medici family, for example, back in the 15th century, every family, every firm, faces a commons problem. There's a pool of wealth out there, and if somebody doesn't protect it and manage it, lo and behold, it'll disappear. 
and bankruptcy is the counterpart to the tragedy of the commons. And um, so the Medici family could only open offices. They were a global operation uh, headquartered in Florence. They could only open offices when they had a son or daughter old enough to be the office manager. Uh, and so when they would have a son or daughter reach maturity, they would open office in London or Brussels or wherever. And But they still had a commons problem. That is, even my children, as Lorenzo might have put it, will rob me. Hmm. And so he managed it with the will. Uh-huh. That is, he said, okay, we will. We don't meet often because it's costly. We will review the family will, and based on the performance of your office, we will expand or contract the proceeds that you will receive in the will. And so the will became a piece of technology. That's a friend of mine. His father claimed to have a, his will in a loose-leaf notebook with different sections for each kid. <laughs> and kids didn't behave. He just moved the pages onto a different section. That's all. Same idea. I didn't know it was pioneered by the Medici. <laughs> and maybe they got it from somebody else. Not sure it's true, but it's a nice That's story. Right. But the, uh, you know, the other kinds of technologies, like transponders that can be put on the dash of an automobile now, produced at a very low cost so that you can be tootling along on an expressway and uh, uh, your transponder will be recognized and you will get a bill for uh, traveling certain hours of the day with a different price depending on the amount of congestion. And uh, all of that's taking place now at a very, very low cost. And it would have been a miracle to even think about something like that 20 years ago. Uh, but uh, that makes it possible to, to ration uh, uh, highway use, expressway use, with, with price instead of uh, parking, turning it into a parking lot <laughs> time. I know all about that. <laughs> Well, let's talk about the cases where it's it's hard to establish property rights, either for a variety of reasons, but often because it's too costly, such as the ocean. Uh, you could you could tag whales or tuna, uh, imaginably. It's hard to tag uh, to give people fenced-in rights on the ocean when you want to let animals roam about different parts of that. So you don't want to keep them in a in a small area. Although I mentioned in a previous podcast with Don Boudreau when we touched on these issues, that people do farm fish now in the ocean. But the general problem for many of these resources, such as the air or river water rights or wells that we're talking about or the oceans, is that it's, um, it's hard to establish those property rights. So we often turn to collective action and various forms of regulation to monitor and restrain overuse. So how have those... Uh, what are some of those options? And talk about the collective choice problem that you talk about in the book that that comes up, that is inevitable. Right. The you know if you think about property rights, uh, I guess what I would think of the sometimes think of them as stations of property rights evolution, and it doesn't necessarily mean that property rights evolve in this nice, neat, orderly way. But you start with nothing. That is, you start with the world of commons or common access resource if we're thinking about rivers and lakes and, and uh, uh, those, can, those kinds of assets. But you, you start with nothing. It's a world of a commons or common access. Uh, then the next station, generally speaking, is common property. Uh, that is, every member of a tribe has access to fish in a river. Native Americans were really good at this, and they develop a scheme, but it's tribal. Uh, it gets to be custom. Uh, it may be 
discrete amounts of time that members of families can fish. There may be rules of sharing, that is, whatever is caught today will be divided on some kind of basis among members of the tribe. And using that kind of mechanism, you have common property. You have to be a member of the tribe in order to participate. Um, then uh, we move to the invention of government, and when we get governments invented, we call that public property. That is, it's something that belongs to the public, managed by the public. But you get another commons problem. You got the politicians, and uh, the politicians, in a sense, uh, are grazing on a commons, and depending on what is motivating them, they may try to get up early and graze a lot, and uh, you get an overgrazing uh, brought about by political rules. Oh, yeah, we're talking about sheep. I think it involves fleecing. That's sometimes. right, but you know, they, there's an old saying, uh, you can fleece a sheep many times, but you can only skin him once. Yeah. <laughs> so... Right. I think, that's, I that's, think that's, about that when I fill out my tax returns each yeah. year. Well, that's right. If you treat the taxpayer sufficiently well, he's a renewable resource. That's but, right. That's but if right. You, over, you overuse him, uh, he may uh, become extinct. Or his resources we'll come might. back, or that has become extinct, in the, and maybe literally, yeah. <laughs> but, but figuratively, and go underground, <laughs> uh, and people will then use those resources to avoid the whole experience. That's right. But uh, going back to the story, you get public property, and, and I usually think of a fork in the road right there as we think about regulatory approaches. Out of the public's effort to manage natural resources, uh, out, of, out of government's effort to manage public resources on behalf of citizens, we see two kinds of things that take place. One is what I call regulatory property rights. You go to EPA and you get a permit. Uh, the permit it gives you the right, uh, for example, to emit certain amounts of chemical emissions into the air over some stated period of time with all kinds of circumstances specified. But if you have your permit, uh, it's like saying you've got a fishing license, now go and have fun on the river. Uh, but if you have a permit, it's rationing, and it is a property right. Generally speaking, it can't be sold to somebody else. Uh, you may sell your firm, and sometimes those permits travel with the firm. But uh, it's a little bit risky uh, in terms of transferring those rights. But you get regulatory property rights. The other fork is you get private property rights. Uh, that is, government uh, steps aside and sometimes facilitates an auction, as we did in this country's history with land, uh, facilitates an auction, transfers, and sometimes develops the transfer mechanism, but transfers, specifies and transfers the asset to private citizens, and then you look the other way, and uh, these people then take off and they manage the resource on the basis of incentives that would be playing through the community and with individuals, and then you have a rule of law that is protecting neighbors from each other in terms of what might be called abusive use of assets. So you can get that fork in the road. Um, it's rough traveling uh, uh, through that intersection. And in terms of natural resources and the development of uh, different kinds of property rights approaches in our nation's history, uh, we've had a, what I would call a devil of time uh, uh, with this evolutionary process. It is evolving, but it's slow. Uh, but when we look at water resources, for example, we look at rivers, 
and uh, consider what might be called modern history with respect to dealing with water pollution. Uh, There's a uh, what I consider to be a wonderful experience to learn from that took place uh, in Germany uh, at the turn of the last century, about 1890, heavily industrialized region of the Ruhr near Essen. Essen was really the center of it. Uh, they had a tragedy of the commons in the sense that uh, too much discharge of waste from steel making and coke making and other kinds of chemicals into the river uh, plus low flow drought periods led to a typhoid epidemic where a lot of people were killed. And uh, so when that happened more than once, uh, the city fathers, as it turns out, truly men who were leaders in business and industry there, got together and said, we, we've got to fix this thing. And they incorporated the river. They made it a corporation. And there wasn't anybody to stop them. And they basically said, let's privatize this thing. They didn't use those words. And anyone who's going to have access to the river, it's now private property, will have to deal with the owner. And so we're going to limit use of the river. We're going to solve this flow problem. And we're going to avoid typhoid. And they proceeded to do that. And they formed a corporation for the Ruhr. Well, you say they proceeded to do that. Most of us sitting here listening, including myself, don't have any idea what that could possibly be. What could it mean to own the river? So well, how did they do that? The, uh, and, and, you know, when you first think of it, you say, well, what does it mean? And so, in a sense, they would, it would be uh, similar to saying, I own my house uh, in a situation where no one had ever owned houses. They all lived, I mean, suppose everybody lived in houses that they had somehow built. But the notion of ownership had not developed. And it would be in the face of someone's coming and saying, I want to occupy this place. And you say, you can't. So we develop this word, mine, this is mine. <laughs> and then how do, we, how do we go about declaring our ownership, <clears throat> making our ownership official? Well, let's invent a courthouse. Let's write down these descriptions of this property. And in a sense, they described the property. Here's the Ruhr River. This segment of it, not the entire river, this segment of it, is going to be controlled by a corporation in Germany. They're called, they're called Genossenschaften. And so we actually incorporate, just the way we incorporated our steel mill, just the way we incorporated our schools, they formed a corporation and they called it the Ruhrverband, the Ruhr Association, and they incorporated it. Okay, so the interesting challenge, of course, is the what we... Uh, in jargon called spillovers, but in this case, it's literally a spillover. My section of the river comes before yours or after, and therefore our actions affect each other in ways that aren't always the case with typical right. private property. So how did, that get, how did that get dealt with? And so they had to make the segment large enough so that the assimilative capacity of the stream would take care of that upstream discharger uh, or... Incur, or in some way reach out to another community and get them involved as well. But what they developed was something like a country club. Anyone who uses the river, that is withdrawal or discharge, must pay. So they became the drinking water provider for the region. You pay. If you put things in the river, you pay. Some things we will not allow you to put in the river. We will test those things first, but based upon the river's assimilative capacity that 
you use up, we will set price. And the more you use up, the higher will be your price. We then gather revenues. Everyone who is a user, every city, every firm, must be a shareholder. And so we have our annual meeting or our quarterly meeting, and we look and see how we're doing. And if we're running positive cash flow, then that's great. Everyone may get a dividend. If we're running in the hole, we're going to be sending out for assessments. And so this thing worked. By that I mean they avoided the tragedy of the commons and they had a going enterprise and the king of Prussia was so impressed he said, hey, I like that model. Let's use it for all the rivers uh, in that region. This was West Prussia at the time. Uh, Let's use it in all of the rivers in that region. And so they began to form corporations for the different rivers in the area. Then there was a variation in price, which was interesting. There was competition among the water quality providers. Uh, So if someone wanted to build a plant that would be discharging, normally discharging into a river, you could go and knock on the doors of the different managers and saying, how much do you charge? So there was competition. And the competition led to innovation in in terms of different ways to maintain water quality. Uh, Sometimes you can add oxygen to a stream just by making the flow more turbulent. And so along some of those rivers, they they brought in huge boulders, loads of rocks, so that the river would... You would get a white water effect, and that's introducing oxygen back into the river. In some cases, they put direct injection of oxygen into the river in order to sustain life and to make the river healthy. Hmm. But these things, some of these things developed out of the competitiveness of the region, of the different regions and the different river basin managers. Uh, but it, it's an interesting approach. The... Uh, We had a very similar thing, or almost. We didn't get the institutional response, but we had a very similar thing occur in the United States uh, along the Ohio River uh, in the 1930s, 1940s. Very similar in the sense that it was iron and steel, it was coal, it was chemicals, it was a repeat, basically, of the Ruhr story. And uh, the problem there had to do with uh, the industrialization as well as the discharge of untreated sewage from sewage from cities, particularly from Pittsburgh. And Cincinnati was down at the bottom end, receiving everybody's waste. Hmm. Um, They had to build larger and larger water treatment works to provide drinking water to the citizens of their city because they were cleaning up everybody else's waste. And that continued to be a problem until the river, the Ohio River, became so polluted that there was an outbreak of gastroenteritis and the, uh, the little bugs that cause it defy gravity. They go upstream. So people upstream began to be sickened by their own waste. And that led they to finally the... finally bear a cost for their... Instead of being able to just impose costs on others, at least they were finally bearing some cost. That's right. And so... so you know, there, there was enough knowledge of health science at the time to know clearly uh, what was causing the problem and what would be the solution, the solution in the sense of getting the river cleaned up. And this led to a multi-state compact, which under our Constitution requires Congress to approve. 
a multi-state compact, ten states get together and form an association, a river basin association, uh, that began, in a sense, to incorporate, in a legal sense, to incorporate the Ohio River, a major stretch of it. And this was approved by Congress. And it was sort of interesting when you go back and look at the approving legislation. The purpose, it was called the Ohio River Sanitation Commission. The purpose of this thing was to get the river healthy again so that the people could be healthy. And uh, they did marvelous things. But in the approving legislation, it specifically says that the treatment of wastes will be based on benefits and cost, and they will not be uniform. That is, we, the, we will not allow a one-suit-fits-all approach to be used in the management of the river, which is exactly what was required when EPA was formed. Um, but e- EPA required a, a one-size-fits-all. One-suit-fits-all, and, and that, was in, that was basically the legislative blueprint. Explain uh, what you mean by that distinction, that, that in the Ohio River Basin Association, it was flexible, but in the uh, national-federal regulation, it was not. Yeah, I do, need to, I do need to focus on that distinction because it's a very important one. It's a subtle one in a way. When you first say it, you say, well, gee whiz, so what? The... Uh, um, when we consider a particular city, let's say Pittsburgh, or a particular industrial plant that's located along the Ohio River, and then as you travel down the river, there's another city and there's another industrial plant. Um, if, if we were trying to develop an approach that would lead to, let us say, a, a 30% reduction in oxygen-consuming wastes, that's something we can measure. And so everybody's discharging waste, and the only thing we're worried about is maintaining a level of oxygen in the stream, and so anything that consumes oxygen, we're going to deal with. The simplest thing for us to do from our standpoint would be to say everybody reduces by 30%, and we got it. And that would be the one-size-fits-all. That's one-size-fits-all. Now, we can even go further than that, which is what occurs in our in the Federal Water Pollution Control Act. Not only do we base our order on a 30% reduction, we're going to tell you what kinds of machines you must use to achieve that because we really aren't going to get our hands messy and dirty by measuring your outfall. We're going to measure on the basis of you install the equipment that we know works. And so that way, we approve the equipment. And so it gets to be a technology-based standard. And so if you're running a steel mill with a particular process, then you use this particular form of technology. And so does your competitor down the river, and so does every other steel mill operator. That's one suit fits all. Another approach would be for us to go to each of the dischargers and say, we don't care how you do it. What we're concerned about is the performance of the river. After all, we are the Environmental Protection Agency. We're not the steel mill construction agency. We don't care how you do it. We're going to measure. And you figure out how you want to approach this, and we're not going to tell you how. We're going to come back, and we're going to look at the results of the river. So for each discharger, we would have that conversation, and we would set up some kind of monitoring device. And... uh, give them a report card or fines, whatever the case might be, based on the performance involved. An even 
Another approach would be for us to look at zones of the river. And if there are dischargers on different sides of the river in the zone, we could say we're going to form a community here. What we're concerned about is the outcome from all of the dischargers along this river. And we don't care what any one discharger does. Indeed, one discharger may not do anything if the guy across the river can offset it. What we're interested in is the final result in terms of the points in the river that we seek to manage, quality control points. So if there's a really cheap way for one producer because that producer is making steel and it's really easy to reduce oxygen destruction in the steel discharge – then you might want that that producer to reduce by more than thirty percent, and and this other one across the way, which would be where it'd be very expensive, might do nothing. Right, and so and so, did they do that though? Is did, was the law? They did was, not. Was uh, the Ohio River Basin Association that flexible in how it? It was not, and and in a sense, the problem they faced was not that complex, not as complex as what I just described in terms of multiple discharges in different places. The major problem they had was was from municipal waste. That was the major problem. But they did not develop an approach which told each municipality, these are the technologies you must use and so forth. And so flexibility was allowed. And in that sense, the incentive for discovery and finding different ways of cleaning up, it was a performance standard. That is, you've got to reduce your impact on the river in this particular way. They put in robot monitors. This was in 1949, way back. I mean, they had technology. How crude it might be, they had it. But they had uh, robot monitors at different points in the river. Down in Cincinnati, I've seen the pictures of the control room, but down in Cincinnati, they had a big control room, and you can just visualize lots of dials on the wall, giving readings on different points along the river in terms of water quality. And so theirs was an outcome-based regulatory approach with performance standards, in a sense, saying to each of the participants, you figure out how you want to do it. What we worry about is the river. Now, when uh, when we moved, uh, when we went to federal legislation, and the 1972 Federal Water Pollution Control Act was the big blueprint, and, and we've been sort of riding on it ever since with different amendments and so forth. That piece of legislation basically said there will be technology-based standards, not performance, and they will be applied uniformly across similar operations of the same industries throughout the United States. And so, you know, we'll have this one grand time where we propose rules, we get the final rules, and you know what the rules of the game are. There was extraordinary corporate support for that approach. And uh, and, and for some very logical reasons. You know, quite often you hear from firms, hey, if you're going to regulate us, just tell us what you want us to do. Tell us exactly what you want us to do. We'll figure out a way to do it, and then we're going to go on producing automobiles, and we will have solved this problem of water pollution. The, the other uh, interesting aspect of it is what business people often say. What we want is a level playing field. Yeah. <laughs> How many times have we heard that wonderful expression? Sounds good, doesn't it? <laughs> We want Who could be against it? Yeah. Le- 
level playing field. In fact, the peep, the firms that were operating along the Ohio River uh, came and testified in favor of the formation of EPA and the federal and the Federal Water Pollution Control Act, so that they could get out of the situation where they say we're required to do things here on the Ohio River that our competitors out in California are not required to do. It's not fair. We want a level playing field. And so the level playing field, in a sense, leads to cartelization. While it, while it has some features that are attractive to firms on one hand, that is, tell us what we have to do and tell us what we have to do, give us a permit, and we'll go on our way doing it. It also can be a coordinating device for firms in the same industry uh, to restrict output. And to restrict entry of competitors. That's right. Um, and you know, when you said that, Russ, it, there, there is that uh, feature of the statute, and we find it in both air and water, that there are stricter standards required for new entrants than for existing firms. And, uh, and that's very popular with the existing firms, strangely enough. That's right. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, there's a lot to be said about this, but I, I want to make sure we get to a, um, a key part of the story that we haven't talked about yet, which is the role of common law. And I think in most people's minds, uh, before 1972 or 1970 in the case of the Clean Air Act, uh, it was just a free-for-all. It was the chaos of, of the dog-eat-dog world of comp, you know, ca- capitalism and competition, and the Ohio River Basin Association was a rarity. Most commonly held resources, be they air or water, were abused because of the incentives of common property that we've talked about. And without the federal government's intervention, uh, the air would never have gotten clean. The water would never have gotten clean. And these top-down, centralized, technology-based solutions are held up, I think, by their defenders as saviors uh, because the pre-1970 world was clearly a world of of filth and pollution. But you've argued, and, and this is what I'd like to turn to, you've argued that there, were, there was a different mechanism in place, decentralized mechanism, that restrained people from imposing costs on their neighbors. Because what this is really about is that when you have a common access resource, uh, a lake, a f- river, an ocean, the airspace, you can sully it, you can dirty it, you can pollute it, and the costs to you are small relative to the benefits of not having to th- dispose of the waste properly. When all the when it's your property, most people don't litter in their own yard. Some people might have trouble keeping their yard clean. Uh, when you have four kids, as I do, there's a lot of soccer balls littering the yard, I have to confess. But most people take care of what's theirs, and they are not as careful with things that are not theirs. That's a human failing or a reality, depending on how you want to phrase it. And so I think this the, the mythical... Uh, uh, s- story of how the EPA evolved and and was created was that you know pre 1970 every man for himself dirty environment after 1970 everything's great because because the government's taking care of it it's more nuanced than that and so tell us what happened before yeah far 1970. more nuanced but but I think that is the popular perception and uh, and for very understandable reasons uh, in terms of what we hear what we read. And our perceptions about the way the world works, and it and it works pretty well. That is, uh, uh, we've got a pretty clean environment that we enjoy here in the United States, and and, and it's much have, improved since 1970. There's no doubt you about it. Better believe it, right? 
in, in very meaningful ways. The, uh, but there were two kinds of activities that were going on before. There was a f- before the federal approach, which basically the bright line is about 1970. Uh, but prior to 1970, there were two things going on uh, in the United States and in the world uh, that, that were environmental managers, if we want to call them that. One was state law and city ordinances. That is, every major city in the United States prior to 1970 had rules that dealt with air pollution, for example. Some going way, way back, in a sense, going back to the time where air pollution became a problem. When human beings perceive they have a problem, they do something about it. Unless there is some law that prohibits them from taking action, human beings want to live. They want their property to be more valuable instead of less valuable. If there's junk and gunk being thrown in the air in a community and it is causing property values to fall and people to get sick, they do something about it. I think it's that simple. And they don't necessarily form a national government to do that. If there is a national government, they will surely turn to it if the problem is extensive enough. But when we look at the United States and its history, there's a crazy quilt of legislation at the state level with respect to water and with respect to air in major cities and so forth. And so there are all kinds of rules. There is no uniformity whatsoever. What one can forecast when you study it is that when the problem gets severe, people take action driven by income. Where incomes are low, people will live with problems longer, and that you can test that hypothesis, and it's pretty well supported. But long before there were city ordinances, state laws, long before there were federal, there was federal action. There was common law. Common law, unlike statutes, unlike ordinances, is made by judges on a case-by-case basis. It is constantly evolving. The common law rules or the common law decisions apply to the parties to the controversy and to no one else. The rules that come out of a particular controversy may become precedent and other judges in other places and in other times will read those decisions and will reflect on those decisions and call on those decisions in settling another similar case. And so, unlike politically made law, common law comes out of the community, it comes out of the minds of judges, and it's a beautiful thing to me in the sense that you have people who seek to understand the norms, the customs, the traditions, the values of the members of their community, the people we call judges who are given this position. And they listen and reflect on wisdom of the ages, and they read similar decisions that have been made through time. We're talking about centuries, Russ. Uh, One of the early and very important environmental cases uh, is one that was in 1611 in England. Judges in the United States will read about cases that were settled in England in 1611, and uh, the same logic will be applied. And it's a simple logic. No one has the right to impose cost on his neighbor against his neighbor's will. It's that simple. It's just so commonsensical. And so you don't have the right to have pigs in your backyard if your pigsty is reducing the happiness of your neighbors. 
unless you went to them first and said, hey, I want to build a pigsty, and it's kind of ugly. Uh, what can I do? And it uh, smells. Yeah, to make you be okay with this. And they might say, nothing. Hmm. <laughs> so that's the end of that. You know, they might say, I kind of like that Mercedes you're driving. Mm-hmm. Or you pay me something every year. Or whatever the agreement might be, you can contract. The rule says you cannot impose cost on your neighbor against your neighbor's will, which says you can contract with your neighbor. And so then you have a market process that works, that is workable in a common law context. How did it work? How would it work in practice? How would the common law? So in practice, uh, uh, in a sense, a a firm, let us say, uh, you you want to build a paper mill and you want to operate on a river, as you generally do with paper mills, and you're gonna you would like to discharge your waste into the river because it's not as costly as putting in a waste treatment plant. So you treat some of your waste, you dump some in, and it's going to deteriorate the water that passes the land of other people, and you don't own all the land along the river. Well, one approach would be for you to buy land as far as the damage might go. And in some cases, firms did that. That solved the problem. In other cases, they could go to downstream landowners and they say, here's what we're planning on doing and here's what it will look like. And we would like to pay you something annually to allow us to, in effect, deteriorate the water quality that passes your land and so paper mills in Wisconsin, in the United States, did that. And they had an ongoing series of payments and contracts with downstream owners uh, to accept a deterioration in water quality. And so, so that's the approach that was used. Now, some people's reaction to that would be, and this is uh, an interesting example, the difference between economists and non-economists, uh, a lot of, I think, non-economists thought is, well, but they're still polluting. Uh, the ideal level of pollution is zero. And obviously, this system didn't work because it didn't eliminate pollution. The economist's perspective is that you want to take in the cost of getting to zero. The way to get to zero is to live in a cave without any clothes on and don't make a fire because that pollutes. And everything has costs. And the real question is not whether it's costly, but whether the benefits outweigh the costs. Yes. And and there's an, there's an interesting distinction that uh, that we economists probably like to make, and uh, that is there is economic pollution, and there's biological pollution. Uh, biological pollution can be economic pollution if it's imposing costs on human beings that they wish to get rid of. But if there's biological pollution and it's not imposing cost on human beings, then in a sense, it's not out there in the economic world. It is present in the biological world. So it, re- it requires, in an economic sense, that there be a human receiver in this system. And this human being says, hey, I don't like that. Now we've got an economic problem. Now I want to come back to the Wisconsin example, yes. though, of the, of the paper mill. Yes. Presumably the paper mill compensated downstream landowners for harm and damage which, of course, did discourage them from polluting more than they otherwise would. Uh, but I assume they did that not out of the goodness of their heart, but because a common law decision that, that made that relevant, correct? That's right. So That's can right. you explain that? That's right. 
And it, and it would be that, just as you compensate the workers who come to the mill, not out of the goodness of your heart, because but the workers own property rights to their own labor, and in order to attract them, you've got to pay them. The downstream owner owns the property rights to environmental quality downstream, and in order for you to attract it to your use, you have to pay the owner. So in a sense, it, the, the common law rule just turned, just turned environmental quality into a resource like labor and every other uh, resource that some firm or organization would like to employ, and you deal with the owner on the owner's terms. Now, in some jurisdictions, by, by jurisdictions, I mean, let's, let me clarify, common law in the United States is at the level of states. And so we have 50 bodies of common law, and it's not always identical, and you better read it if you're going to move from one state to another. We had evolving what was called federal common law. This was prior to the statutes being passed. And, and I should also interject here that any time you have a statute, it overpowers or overrides or takes precedent over common law. So statutes are always more powerful than common law. But in other jurisdictions, for instance in New York, during the period when in Wisconsin paper mills were buying the right, you might say, to discharge waste from downstream owners, in New York there's an interesting case of a farmer that had one cow that got sick from drinking water that went across the farmer's land that was polluted by a new paper mill. And the damage was $100, as best anybody could determine. The new paper mill cost a million dollars to build and employed 500 people. And Mr. Whalen, the farmer, brought suit at common law against the paper mill and ultimately won. And the judges, as this thing went through the court system on appeal, finally said, look to the paper mill. You knew when you came into New York and planned to build a mill that we have rules of law. You do not have the right to impose cost on a downstream owner against his will, and you have done that. And so you have two alternatives. One is to shut down. Oh, no, we spent a million dollars, 500 people. And the judge basically said, don't tell me about that. We have a rule of law. It's not a benefit-cost question. Either shut down or clean up so that Mr. Whalen can enjoy the happiness of his farm and his cow won't get sick anymore. And, and so, you know, common law varied from state to state, and it was evolving in that sense. And you could have very strict interpretations, and it could be that the milk might have gone to Whalen before the fact and talked and paid him to uh, allow them to use some of his environmental quality. But you know, Russ, when, when we say, uh, that all sounds okay, but I'm still left with this problem. You got junk going in the river, and it's going downstream, and now you just paid somebody to, to live with that junk, but it's doing something to the environment, and I'm not happy with that. I think that's when we have to say, relative to what? And then to look at the alternatives. Okay, say, to say, okay, well, let's see how it works when a paper mill gets a permit from the EPA. Yeah, that gives them the right to discharge waste into the river, and it goes downstream, and they don't pay anybody. And so it's not a choice of zero pollution or common law. 
with some pollution and people being paid. That is, we haven't discovered that approach as yet. The in utopian our approach? Yeah, it's a shame. And uh, nowhere else. Yeah, well, not on this earth. Uh, let's turn to that question because I first, first I want to mention that for our listeners who find this conversation interesting, we have a previous podcast uh, with Don Boudreau on the distinction between law and legislation, which is really uh, very closely related to this distinction we're making between common law and statutes. And you might want to go uh, listen to that if you're, you're interested in this. But I, I, the other part I think that's interesting for our listeners and that's interesting for me is that this historical uh, backdrop of how the courts uh, enforced uh, property rights that were not literal in, this, in the traditional sense, but nuisances, torts, damage that was done to people trying to use their water, trying to use the air. This is an approach that most of us are totally unaware of, that this was a way pre-1970 that if you were being harmed by pollution, you could do something about it. So first thing I think I want to say is that this is very interesting. For most of us, we don't know about it. Second thought I think people would have is, well, okay, it, it worked somewhat, and you could sue someone who, who who killed your cow or got your cow sick or who polluted your drinking water and you got sick or made something that was really ugly that you used to enjoy and was beautiful. So you could sue them, but yeah, but so, that sounds nice in, in theory, but you might not know where the pollution's coming from, and not everyone has access to the legal system, and not everyone has the time to do that. So this sort of more even, uh, less flexible, but but more... A severe uh, legislative statute-driven solution of the 1970s to the present, that's better. Because even, even the word you use, crazy quilt, I mean, you get all these different things. Some of them probably didn't work so well. Some of them allowed some people to take advantage of others. It's better to have this federal system that just says, let's not try to measure all this stuff precisely about flexibility. Let's just get the air and the water clean. And I think the issue then becomes, which is where you were turning, is, well, let's look at the evidence. What actually happened to the air and water? As we pointed out earlier, the air and the water certainly has gotten cleaner since 1970. So in that sense, the top-down federal solution has, quote, worked. It's made the air and water cleaner. Did the common law system make the air and water cleaner over time? Yeah, what we have, you know, we, in a sense, we have uh, two time series, neither of which is as good as any scientist would like for it to be in terms of comparability of observations year by year, sampling and all of that. But people have attempted uh, to estimate what was going on with respect to progress in air quality and progress in water quality prior to and after 1970. And the people who've done that come up with some really interesting findings that speak to the question, and this is statistical, and so we can always say, but I know a man who. <laughs> and there were a lot of man who's where, hey, it didn't work out that way. But there was significant progress being made prior to 1970 in terms of reductions of measured kinds of pollutants as best those things were being measured prior to that time. That is, there was a trend down in terms of waste going out and into the air and into the water. So we had a system, in a sense, you could say, well, it was working. Then we hit the statutes, and there is progress that continues, and in some ways, one might say the progress is not distinguishable at that intersection, but it does continue. 
and we have had progress. But here's, here's something that's rather curious to me. The, the federal statute did away with common law rights with respect to disputes involving multi-states, interstate disputes. For example, city of Chicago is discharging waste and it's polluting Milwaukee's drinking water. And I'm speaking of a specific case now. That's interstate pollution. Prior to the passage of the statute, Milwaukee could bring a suit against Chicago at common law and say, look, you've got to clean up. We don't care what your standards are, but you're goofing us up over here. And at common law, they would have had a chance of getting a settlement, and indeed did. Then the statute gets passed, and Chicago goes the to statute. and appeals it. I beg you, the, stat, the federal water pollution yeah. control statute gets passed, which says interstate problems are a problem of the federal government. In a sense, your common law days have passed. And so the parties go to the court and say, give us an interpretation. We had been ordered to clean up as a result of a common law case. Do we really have to clean up? The answer was no. You don't have to clean up. You just have to satisfy EPA. So the question is, why did we remove common law rights? In other words, let's keep them. That is, let's grant, hey, EPA does a lot of wonderful stuff. Well, then why take away common law rights from people? Why don't people still have the right to be protected at common law from what their neighbors might do to them, imposing costs on them against their will. And it's not good enough to say, oh, but that's all right, I have an EPA permit. Um, so I, would, I think there's something to be said for let's try to keep common law. Then the role of EPA itself, they are wonderful in terms of scientific evidence, research and so forth. Uh, EPA could be a powerful consultant with credibility in cases at common law so that EPA comes in with the data when people say, but we wouldn't know where it comes from and we wouldn't know how to measure it. Uh, so I think what might be suggested in an evolutionary way is that we try to pick the best features of different institutions that human beings have developed through time and salvage those and let them live on. Uh, there could be environmental courts with specialized judges and masters. And I should point out, there's always the problem of people say, gosh, it's costly to bring a suit and to hire a good lawyer. Ordinary people would not be able to afford that. It is costly. Um, and so there could well be a case for public defenders, that is, attorneys general district attorneys to have public defenders with respect to environmental rights so that that access would be there. The, uh, uh, there are different kinds of baselines that might be considered. That is, it's, it's certainly the case where you could have rules and a baseline and then common law protections beyond that. But the, I think the idea of experiments, uh, giving people at the ground, on the ground, at the ground level, closest to the problem, access to remedies and approaches for making things better is what we're talking about here. And there is something else, Russ, that I think should be mentioned. It just happens to be a peculiarity of, the, of, of our organic law when this country was formed. A decision was made that the beasts of the fields and the fishes in the water and so forth would be the property of the nation. 
they say everybody's property is nobody's property. That was a sharp change from what had been the case in England. In English, in England, and in the English part of Canada, people who own land own the fisheries in the streams that pass their land, which is to say they own the fish, not by name or number, but by health. And so if a firm discharges waste that affects the biological life of that river, then suits are brought. The suits are brought systematically by angling clubs and have been for years. That's fishing, folks, for those of you out there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) By fishing clubs. So the fishing clubs are the ones who have been instrumental in bringing about dramatic improvements in water quality in the streams and rivers of England um, because of a property rights distinction. Over the years now, there have been hundreds of suits that have been brought. I think they may have lost five or ten. It's to the point now where there's one employee at the Anglers Conservation Association who can just call somebody and say, I'm calling you from the Anglers Conservation Association. We don't like what you're discharging in the stream. You're killing our fish. That's usually the end of the conversation. It gets fixed. They're so efficient in what they're doing using common law. We can't do that in the United States uh, because we declared the fish to be a commons and 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 all of the animals that roam in the woods. Uh, it is a distinction that has made a big difference. That's really interesting. Well, we're almost out of time. I want to challenge you uh, with one uh, question that comes naturally to mind based on what you said earlier. You said that human beings, when they face a problem, they, they do something about it unless there's a barrier or some kind of regulation that stops them. One could look at the EPA's uh, creation and the post-1970 um, statute-driven environmental regulation as that kind of solution. That This common law story that we've talked about, while making some progress, uh, perhaps wasn't making fast enough progress, and we turned to the EPA to solve the problem, and they've done it better. People can debate about whether the data show that the pre-1970 or post-1970 improvements were faster with common law or without common law. But what do you think of this argument that the EPA was created because just we just had to get the environment cleaner and this common law solution, which you and I like the features of and many of the attributes of because of its decentralization, its use of competition across jurisdictions, letting a thousand flowers bloom, it just wasn't working. And that's why the EPA was created. What do you think of that argument? I, th- I, th- I mean, I think it's a good statement. Now, whether it's, whether, whether it's 100% accurate in each of its elements is a separate question, but I think it's a good statement, Russ, in terms of making a statement about what happened. And I think what, 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 uh, what we might hope for, what I would hope for, is that we take this EPA, which is a very powerful and effective organization, and we look inside at different statutes which, in a sense, instruct EPA as to how to operate. And it follows those instructions very, very carefully because otherwise the agency will be sued by environmental organizations or others who want to make certain they follow the law. We look at the features of different statutes and say, wouldn't it be interesting if, if there were an amendment here that would allow EPA to use a performance standard for water pollution control instead of a technology-based standard and achieve the same end? 
Wouldn't it be wonderful if we focused on outcomes instead of inputs? Wouldn't it be interesting if we allowed EPA by statute to take a river basin association approach in managing water quality where members of the water using and consuming community would be able to organize their approach with assurance that the outcome would be at least as good and it would be, the burden would be on them to prove it at least as good as what would be accomplished under command and control technology-based standards. Wouldn't it be interesting if EPA were able to take that approach and then include in it contracts and common law enforcement within a community, all in the context of a national approach, a federal approach, to bringing assurance that we're making progress in water quality and air quality and other protections of the environment. The sad news is that we're losing ground, uh, particularly because of non-point source pollution and particularly because of the discharge of waste into, into harbors of major cities that are on the ocean. In other words, we're not making progress. And it's understandable the population is growing, we've got more people, we've got more activity, and it's going to be more and more difficult to make progress in gaining more environmental quality. And so I think this is the time to go back and look at the fine print. It's not to suggest that, hey, let's just get Congress to do away with EPA and say we're going back to common law. Uh, there's no point in even talking about that sort of thing. Because we do evolve as people, and EPA has something to offer and is offering something, but it is now an organization that is based on the problems of the 1960s and 70s, and we have a totally new world that calls for more decentralization, more experimentation, and better outcomes than we're going to be able to deliver, I think, with the mechanisms that we're using. My guest today has been Bruce Yandel of Clemson University and George Mason University's Mercatus Center. Bruce, thanks for a fascinating conversation. Russ, I surely enjoyed talking with you. In last week's podcast, I spoke with Ian Ayers about the power and limitations of data and statistical analysis. Ayers emphasized the power, and I kept mentioning the limitations, especially in the postscript that I added at the end of the interview. I wanted to use this postscript to clarify a few issues that came up there, partly based on emails I've received and the comments at the Airs podcast. My basic point was that when it comes to high-powered, sophisticated statistical techniques, our biases as researchers and as consumers of that research often triumphs over truth. The truth is elusive in complex systems with many things changing at once. It's hard to isolate the independent effect of one particular variable. When scholars can run hundreds of multivariate regressions at low cost, it's easy to convince yourself that the results that confirm your prior beliefs are the right results. The ones that failed must be the wrong ones. When I was at college at the University of North Carolina, I took a wonderful course from Richard Smythe where I learned about the American philosopher Charles Peirce. It's P-E-I-R-C-E, probably the greatest American philosopher, and the philosophy of pragmatism. Now, Peirce and the pragmatists, which include William James and others, believe that the rationalism of Descartes and Cartesian thought, named after Descartes, had a dangerous element of hubris. The worship of rationality could lead to deluding, could lead to deluding yourself to, about the reliability of your thoughts and reasoning process. Professor Smythe put it this way. 
he used to say, your grandmother's right. She believes in certain things, and when you ask her and press her for a justification or reason for those beliefs, she might just shrug and say, well, no, I don't have an explanation. I can't justify it, but that's the way we've always done it, and that's the way it should be done. You feel superior to your grandmother because you only do things that are rational. That's the way he talked to us as uh, as college students, and I think as 19 and 20-year-olds, we absolutely agreed with him. We, we scorned people who couldn't justify their arguments with reason. Now, most of us feel that way. You know, If you can't prove it, if you can't rationalize it with a, with a, with a logical argument, then obviously it's wrong. But the pragmatists, pragmatists argue that your grandmother and Hayek were onto something. Norms of behavior that survive, survive because they're effective, even when the people who hold those norms and believe in them can't explain the reasons for them. And Hayek, of course, emphasized the evolutionary nature of culture and norms in evolving to be effective. And you didn't have to understand why they were the right thing or why they were effective. They just survived the test of time. It was a form of competition among cultures and norms that produced that outcome. Professor Smite discussed the Cartesian belief that you should, based on Descartes, that you should examine every one of your beliefs. If it passes the test of reason, you keep it. Otherwise, you throw it out if you can't justify it. And that seems like the right way that a thinking person should behave. But the pragmatists argued that it was akin to examining the planks of your boat while you were at sea and throwing them out if they uh, looked uh, unseaworthy. That was the wrong time to be uh, examining your views. It's the road to ruin. It's particularly true when you're less than objective in, deci in deciding whether to reject or accept a belief. Smythe quoted Benjamin Franklin, when fortresses and virgins get to talking, the end is in sight. That is, when you're besieged. Once you start negotiating, it's easy to talk yourself into giving in and finding a way of justifying it as the right thing to do. All of which is to say that we shouldn't pretend to be scientific as economists or when we're only doing something that has the veneer of science, that's much more dangerous than saying, I don't know, or we can't answer that question with the data at hand. Now, I certainly didn't mean to imply that Ian Ayers or John Lott, whose work came up in the conversation with Ayers, are biased researchers who don't do good work. I also didn't mean to imply that data or evidence are irrelevant in how we form our beliefs about what is true, or that our biases never get overturned. The Friedman example the monetary history of the United States, Friedman's work with Anna Schwartz, is clearly a case where empirical work made an enormous decisive difference in convincing the profession of the fact that inflation is everywhere and always a monetary phenomenon. Facts can be decisive, statistical analysis can persuade, but I am struck by how few controversial viewpoints in the field of economics have come to be accepted based on sophisticated statistical analyses. And uh, I encourage our listeners to send me examples of those if I don't know of them. But my claim is, is that while numbers matter and while statistical analysis plays a very important role in convincing people of, what, of how the world works and what is true and what the impact of this policy or that policy is, sophisticated statistical work, that is multi-state, two-stage regression uh, of the kind that we were talking about in the last podcast, instrumental variable results – uh, I'd like to give, get an example where the world has decisively accepted a controversial viewpoint based on that statistical analysis. Where does that leave us? 
Well, economists should do empirical work, empirical work that is insulated as much as possible from the confirmation bias, from the confirmation bias that I'm referring to. Empirical work that isn't subject to the malfeasance of running thousands of regressions until the data screams uncle. And let's not pretend we're doing science when we're not. I'm sure we'll be returning to these issues in the future here at EconTalk. Thanks for listening. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.